Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our new membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, James Kerchek, author of the new book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Jamie, welcome to Bookstuck. Thank you for having me. And congratulations uh, on the book. As you quote Norman Mailer saying, much of this story is one of those who lived like spies. Mm. Yes. Well, to be a gay person in Washington in the period that I'm writing about, or when the book begins, I should say, in the 1930s, um, was to be a spy. You had to pretend you were something else. You were living in the closet. Um, You had to deceive Uh, You had to be good at interpreting codes, uh, a gesture, uh, a certain look, a certain turn of phrase might indicate to someone else that you were the member of of the same despised community of people um, known as homosexuals, sexual deviants. Um, The very word homosexual and homosexuality was considered too scandalous to even mention. uh, In fact, one of the things I, I discovered while researching this book is all the sorts of euphemisms that that um, various politicians and, politi- and, and and journalists and public figures would devise to beat around the bush, so to speak. Um, so yes, during the period of time that my book takes place from the pre-World War II era, the New Deal era, uh, really until the end of the Cold War, uh, there was no greater secret, no more powerful or destructive secret than that of being gay. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned language there. And uh, one of the problems in writing this history, you say, is how language changes over time, that words that change in meaning, uh, respectful terms that become offensive, offensive terms, which are very often reclaimed and and, and then used later on. Yeah, I have have a footnote. The only footnote in the book is on page two, um, where I just sort of explain the terminology that I will be using to describe gay people in this book. Um, And I wanted to be historically accurate and use the words that were used at the time uh, that I'm writing about. So, you know, for much of the book, or certainly the early chapters, uh, homosexual uh, is is the word that I would use to describe gay people. And it was, that was a word that, that could be a noun, it could be an adjective, obviously. It could describe male or female homosexuals, although it would often when you heard the word by itself as a noun, it would just mean a gay man. Um, but for brevity's sake, I would just use gay people as opposed to gay men and lesbians. Um, queer is a word that some people, I'm not one of them, but some people, some gay people and some straight people today consider to be uh, a neutral term. They've considered that they've uh, reclaimed it. Uh, but as I explained in, in that footnote, it is one uh, that was universally considered a, a slur, um, hate speech even. Um, and that's the only context in which it appears in my in my book. And it, it I mean, it is fascinating because, as as you point out, the, the, this is a hidden history of Washington because much of for much of the city's history, not only was it illegal to be gay, but it brought with it the kind of moral opprobrium uh, that you mentioned earlier. And the consequences could be severe. Many people were uh, institutionalized, given forced med- medical treatment. Others were driven to suicide. So the stakes are incredibly high here, not just politically, but personally too. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's really why I wanted to write this book uh, was because I realized I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lover of history, of American history, political history, particularly Cold War history. Uh, and I realized that there was this theme. Um, it was it was a parallel history, not an alternate. This, this book isn't an alternate history, history or a revisionist history. Those, those two terms, I think, have um, negative connotations. I'm trying to tell a parallel history uh, of this terrible secret and what did it make people do? How did people behave? How did gay people behave under, under the extreme pressure cooker environment that this fear of the specter of homosexuality, homosexuality created? How did presidents behave? How did first ladies behave? How did you know straight people in these positions deal with their, their gay friends or their gay assistants? And I think there's just a lot of drama packed into this story because the stakes were so high. And I mean, those stakes very often uh, to be gay was to be linked with enemies of the state, Nazism, yes. particularly uh, with communism after the, the Second World War. Yeah, in February 1950, on February 9th, Joe McCarthy gives his famous speech to the Republican ladies of Wheeling, West Virginia, where he claims that there are 205 communists in the State Department. And just a couple of weeks later, Dean Acheson is called to testify, the Secretary of State, and he brings with him uh, a deputy secretary of state. And in passing, this deputy, he's answering questions about the supposed you know, infiltration of communists at the State Department. And he clarifies that 91 people fired were actually homosexuals. And this comes as a grave shock to Washington. Um, and this is really sort of the beginning, I think, of in the mainstream imagination, the mainstream American political imagination. Is communism becomes conflated or, or associated with homosexuality. Um, it is believed that the State Department, um, lavender lads in the State Department, cookie pushers, you know, these effeminate men uh, who are responsible for the real, you know, uh, series of, of defeats in the, in the early years of the Cold War. I mean, you had the loss of China. You had the loss of Central and Eastern Europe to Stalin. Um, the Soviets are... Uh, detonating a nuclear weapon uh, test um and it's all and it's and it's just it's just a one series of, of of bad news after another for the united states and it becomes convenient to blame this on supposed communists in the state department who are associated with effeminacy and you know diplomacy is seen as uh, a form of weakness and so homosexuality becomes um associated in in the public imagination with communism and you know it's it's one of those interesting things that you talk about that on the on the one hand there's there's very clearly a strain of of homophobia that is is prevalent here and yet on the other hand it is a fact that people were left to open to blackmail because of their hidden gay lives well there's actually no evidence at least in the united states that any uh anyone who any American uh, government worker who committed espionage did so because they were blackmailed for being gay. Um, there was a study done by the Defense Department in the early 1990s where they studied over 100 cases of Americans tried and convicted for espionage. I think believe six of them were gay and none of them did it for blackmail purposes. And in fact, the U.S. government was creating a situation that made uh, their um, employees, whether in the CIA, the State Department, where there was most concern about this, by making homosexuality such a taboo by making it a firing offense. They were in fact creating um, a way for our enemies to blackmail uh, our, our um, diplomats and spies. It never happened, but there was this sort of paradox of this policy 
Whereas if they had just um, accepted uh, their employees being gay, or at least told them, if you are and you're caught in some sort of compromising situation, come to us, admit it, and you won't be fired, then that would have obviated this entire um, purge of gay people from the government. And in fact, there is one case that I document, a pretty high profile one of Joe Alsop, who was a very influential newspaper columnist in America in the post-war years. And he was visiting Moscow in 1950. He was a very virulent anti-communist and a real hawk. And he was caught in the Soviet honey trap with a young man. The KGB took compromising photos and they tried to turn him. They tried to uh, induce him into working on their behalf in Washington. And what he did was he refused and he, he wrote out an entire letter to the CIA explaining the entire situation, acknowledging that he was gay and he had been since, since boyhood. Uh, so he, he did exactly what someone in his situation you know, ought to have done. Um, but it had no bearing on on the um, U.S. government policy towards gay people in in the federal government workforce. Yeah, and I suppose that's the contrast with something like the the famous Vassal case with the uh, in in Britain, yeah. where where the complete opposite of that happened. Although I actually read a book recently, I'm forgetting the, the name, by a British historian. He had a he has a hyphenated last name. Where he actually it's it's about Richard the, Davenport Hines, I guess. Yes, he wrote a piece about. The Cambridge Five and sort of their place in cultural memory and British history, and he has a he has a couple of pages on the Vassal case where he actually raises the point that that might not have been a, a honey trap, and that Vassal might have been a spy all all, all along. Um, I, I it's it's interesting to consider that perspective. I don't I don't remember the exact details of it, but he does make the case that that it might not be all it seems. Yeah, and it's interesting that, I mean, one of the things that you do in the book is that you show how many of the many of the, the stories that you write about are some of the biggest scandals in American history, Sumner Wells, Senator David Walsh, Whitaker Chambers. I mean, these, these are things that are pivotal in many ways in the story of American politics in the 20th century. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the His Chambers case is really the uh, really lays the groundwork for McCarthyism. You have Alger Hiss, who was a communist spy, a high-ranking one in the State Department. Um, and it's such an influential event in American political history. It is where Richard Nixon becomes a political star as a young congressman, as the champion of Whitaker Chambers, who was accusing Alger Hiss of being a communist. And it also, in, in, in a way, sort of gives birth to the, the conservative uh, or even right-wing distrust of elites. Because in the form of Alger Hiss, you have this man who um, comes from this, the right background. He's educated at all the right schools. He's rising through the ranks of the State Department. He's referred to uh, by John Kenneth Galbraith as the Jeeves of the Eastern Establishment. He represents the United States at the, um, the convention, the San Francisco Conference, where the United Nations is founded. He's president of the Carnegie Endowment. I mean, you do not get more elite right, uh, East Coast elite than, than Alger Hiss. And what is revealed? That he's a spy and everyone was defending him. The Truman administration, his fellow intellectuals, his fellow progressives, they're all defending him. And so it kind of seeds this, this, this mistrust in, in elites that conservatives have to this day. And as I argue in the book, there's also this, this major homoerotic uh, undercurrent to that whole affair. It's really been overlooked and, and neglected, I think, by, by many historians is an all, all but forgotten today, but which is that 
that Chambers did have a gay past in the 1930s when he was also in the communist underground. He was, he was very active in another underground society, which was that of the homosexual underworld in New York and Washington. Um, and the Hiss forces um, behind the scenes, they don't openly explicitly make the case, but they really launch a smear campaign against Chambers that he is a vindictive homosexual, that he's making up these allegations purely out of spite of revenge for the fact that Hiss did not accept his um, his you know homosexual advances or whatnot. And this really becomes a kind of alternate theory of the case uh, by many people on the American left for decades uh, after that after that spectacular um, trial. And it's interesting how very often these two lives that uh, people are forced to live ca can uh, do actually exist side by side in a way that is quite surprising. You use the example of Terry Dolan, who in, in, in many ways lived his personal life quite openly uh, as somebody who was gay. And, and you cite when, when, when he's criticised for that lifestyle, uh, you give the example of, of uh, Reagan consciously being photographed with him, uh, James Baker uh, uh, organising a, a dinner for him, that there's a, a, a sense in which people do rally round and that the two different lives, although they don't meet, they nevertheless are able to coexist together. Yeah, well, the 1980s is really when this era of outing begins. Um, there had been a few outings before. I read, I write about the first one, David Walsh, senator from Massachusetts. Um, but the media would uh, was very hesitant to make public accusations of homosexuality. These accusations would often be used behind the scenes. Um, but 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 the media, because it was such a scandalous, dangerous um, thing to allege, the media was very hesitant. At least the mainstream one. By the 1980s, that begins to change, because you have gay people finally coming out of the closet, uh, which had not really been the case um, before the 1970s. And you have gay activists who start understanding and making the case that closeted gay people in positions of power, particularly those on the right or those perhaps in the conservative movement like, like Terry Dolan, um, who are allied with anti-gay forces, that those people are fair game. Uh, they're fair game to be outed. And that prior to this period, there had been a sort of unwritten code among gay people, um, a sort of mutually assured destruction that they would never out each other, despite their political differences, that begins to fall. That 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 kind of code begins to collapse in the 1980s. And Terry Dolan, who's who's his brother, was the chief speechwriter. Tony Dolan was the speech chief, chief speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. Terry was really the leading conservative political activist in Washington in the 1980s. Um, he becomes one of the first people, really the first person, to be outed um, in this era. Um, but he denies it. He denies he's gay. And that's enough for his allies in the Reagan administration and on the American right, because um, without, you know, solid evidence, uh, they can at least have this level of plausible deniability, right? These are just scurrilous accusations that that left wing gays are making. They have a political agenda. But, you know, Terry tells us he isn't gay and therefore we believe him because he was such an important and, and really effective strategist. But he dies of AIDS, uh, and then you can't deny it anymore. You can't deny that that he was a gay man. Um, and I think one of the more dramatic episodes in the book is the battle between his surviving brother, Tony, the chief speechwriter for President Reagan, 
and Ben Bradley, the legendary editor of the Washington Post, when they decide that the Washington Post decides to publish an expose on Terry Dolan's secret gay life and death to AIDS and the, um, the kind of behind the scenes and then very open struggle uh, that goes on between the president's chief speechwriter and the most important journalist in Washington. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because you you seem quite conflicted. It seems to me during that uh, during that chapter, you you appear to be uncomfortable with outing. On the other hand, uh, you describe Dolan and and others as dancing a minuet of hypocrisy, mm-hmm. saying that they were left as as modern day eunuchs. So so even you gr- grappling with these with these issues today. Uh, seem conflicted about them. Yeah, I think outing is a very serious um, thing to do, uh, and there and I and I write about one of the most tragic stories in the book is of a man named Oliver Sippel, who was an ex-Marine gay man, who in San Francisco uh, saved President Ford's life in 1975 during the second assassination attempt on him in September of 1975, uh, and he had fled to San Francisco like many gay people because he came from a homophobic family and wanted to live openly and um, had no expectation of being a public figure. Yet overnight, he becomes one. And he's outed by Harvey Milk, uh, who was not yet a city councilman, but was on his way to becoming one, who had perhaps what he thought was a good rationale. He believed that the world should know that the man who saved the life of the president of the United States was a gay man and that this would dispel some of the you know many terrible uh, prejudices that people held against gay people. What it ended up doing was basically ruining Oliver Sipple's life. His family disowned him. His father wouldn't let him come to his mother's funeral. And he essentially drank himself to death. This was not what Harvey Milk expected would happen. Uh, but when you do, there are all sorts of unknown consequences. There are things that you don't know about a person's private life, their relationship with their family, their own mental health. Um, so outing is something that uh, in general, I oppose in almost any circumstances when the person is alive. When they're dead, I believe they belong to history. And so the decision to write about Terry Dolan, I think, was was and uh, to write about him being gay and, and his death to AIDS, I think, was the right decision on the part of Ben Bradley in The Washington Post. He was a public figure um, who was involved in a political movement that was very hostile to gay people at that time. And I think it was uh, right for Washington and America to know that one of the leading conservative activists in America in Reagan's Washington was a gay man who died of this disease that the Reagan administration was largely ignoring. I think that's newsworthy. Um, just as I think it was newsworthy a couple months ago for the New York Times to posthumously out um, Ed Koch, the mayor of New York, uh, who even you know many years after he left public office, did not come out of the closet and lived the life of a closeted gay man his entire life. And I think it's worth knowing that the man who represented in Congress, Greenwich Village, this is the district where the Stonewall Uprising occurred, right? So the birth of modern gay liberation. You could probably not find a more gay-friendly district in uh, the United States than the one Ed Koch represented. And yet even he, as a progressive Democrat, did not feel comfortable uh, coming out of the closet. And I think it's important that we know that, that we know that this was how painful and how constrictive and how really oppressive the closet was, that someone even in his position did not feel that he could come out for whatever reasons. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. I, I mean, a, a lot of what you're talking about in, involves a principle and 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 clashes between different ways of thinking of the world and so on. Some of the other stories that you tell are just pure politics, aren't they? Not not least the famous example of Sumner Wells, uh, who mm. was uh, kind of a much closer political advisor to uh, Franklin Roosevelt than uh, his boss, the Secretary of State Cordell Hull. Uh, and so Hull just used this as a way politically to slit his throat. Yeah, and I think that World War II is a very important de development here. Um, I could come across no other recorded, you know, in incident of a of a gay person being fired from from the federal government until Sumner Wells. And I think it's because of World War II, because prior to World War II, there's really no concept of national security in America. That is something that 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 happens when the United States enters the war, or, or is at least preparing to enter the war, it's building up an intelligence apparatus, um, it's becoming a global superpower, and it needs to start collecting and managing secrets. And there's, as I've said earlier, there's no more shameful secret than that of being a homosexual. And so this, I think, um, it, it securitizes the issue of homosexuality, it transforms it from being just a sin and a medical condition uh, and say perhaps a private concern. It transforms it into a societal menace and homosexuality becomes a, a, a threat to the country. Um, and so yes, geopolitics and sort of America's role in the world, I think plays a, plays a huge role in how the country would come to view homosexuality. Um, from World War II onwards. Yeah, what about what about um, Washington today? I mean, you you have a very upbeat uh, conclusion that uh, lauding openness, pluralism, uh, and say that uh, at least in this regard, that Washington now is a a, a city that is secret no more. Yeah, I don't believe that homosexuality is a political issue. At least, uh, at least perhaps maybe it still is in some, you know, very far right congressional offices and some. You know, right-wing institutions here, but in terms of the city itself, its politics, um, it's no longer a barrier to entry. And I think we saw that in the campaign of of Pete Buttigieg, who was the first you know serious presidential candidate uh, who's openly gay, and his sexual orientation was not a hindrance. Perhaps it would have been if he had won the nomination and was running against Donald Trump, um, but it did not seem to play any negative role in his campaign. Uh, and we have gay people, openly gay people serving in all levels and all sectors of the government, including in the intelligence services where they were uh, believed to be most dangerous and where, and where they were hounded out by the thousands in, in the intelligence community and the diplomatic community. Um, so, yeah, I am I am I think it's an it's an incredible David and Goliath tale to see how did this group of people go from being you know, one of the most despised groups of people in the United States. It would be hard to find another group of people more despised than homosexuals in the 1930s and 40s. So today, uh, it's just a completely different picture. And it's one that I think we can be proud of as a country and as a society. And and how does it fit, do you think, into the culture wars? I mean, particularly in education, it, st it still seems to be something that is very much um, debated. Um, I think that there is this rhetoric we're seeing, uh, the term groomer being used to describe school teachers, particularly gay school teachers, perhaps, um, uh, and the association of gay people with pedophiles, which is what that term does. It's very nasty. It's quite ugly. 
Um, but I see this happening in cycles I, in terms of the whole history. I, and I, and I, you have to look at the trajectory of this, um, where there's episodes of progress or visibility, and then there's backlash. And that happened in the 1940s, where you know during World War II was a very important moment where gay people largely understood that they were part of a larger community for the first time because of the mass mobilization that the war required. But after the war, there's a, a backlash. Um, when the Kinsey Report comes out and reports that something like 10% of all men are homosexual, this leads to a sex panic and uh, a backlash and the McCarthy period and the, the Lavender Scare. Uh, and then in 1969, after the Stonewall Uprising, we see you know, gay people started coming out of the closet like never before. There's the rise of openly gay public officials or there are people running for office in municipalities across the country. Uh, and then there's the backlash in the form of Anita Bryant and her Save Our Children campaign and the rise of the Christian right. And I think now um, we've, we're seeing a similar backlash. Uh, there's increasing visibility for LGBT people, particularly transgender people, which I think is... Um, largely responsible for most of the backlash. Um, but it is a backlash, and I expect uh, over time um, that, that the American people will continue the trend over the past 70 years, which is to be more accepting of people of different sexual orientation and gender identity. Yeah, it's, it's actually one of the themes of the book that I found interesting. You talked about trajectory and ebb and flows and, and so on there, that you know, one of one of the really interesting threads is that, you know, that um, change does need radicals. But as you show time and time again, it also needs pragmatists and it needs conservatives too. Well, absolutely. And I think um, the story of Frank Kameny, who was not a conservative by any means, I think he would describe himself as a old fashioned Harry Truman, JFK liberal. I think his story is very instructive. He was the first gay person to be fired from the federal government to challenge his firing, which he did after he was fired from the Army Map Service in 1957. He was a Harvard trained PhD astronomer. Um, and he was not a radical by any means. And the case that he made was that gay people were a minority, they were uh, being oppressed, they were being discriminated against for no good reason, that homosexuality was not a sickness, he coins the term gay is good, uh, and he launches a decades-long fight, and he's successful. Uh, in 1973, he's instrumental in getting the American Psychiatric Association to remove homosexuality from its list of mental disorders. Two years later, he's really the leading force to get the Civil Service Commission to lift its ban on gay people serving in the civil service, in the federal civil service, which effectively makes DC one of the first municipalities to basically allow, to have a non-discrimination or anti-discrimination policy protecting gay people. Um, and I think the arguments that he makes uh, and he, that he advances through the Mattachine Society, which is the first sustained gay rights organization in the United States, um, much the same arguments that the African-American civil rights movement made uh, for equality and, and, and for justice and for equal treatment before the law. These are ultimately the arguments um, that I think prevail in achieving equality for gay people. Uh, and I think his role has been overlooked. And I think the role of the Mattachine Society of Washington um, has also been been overlooked. Yeah, you mentioned the law there. I mean, in the the recent Roe v. Wade um, uh, opinions, Clarence Thomas 
uh, signaled that perhaps something like gay marriage might be something that the court would want to look at in the future. There's been a lot of discussion about that. What what do you make of it? Uh, I'm not too worried. I mean, he was the only justice to draw that um, connection. The ruling opinion in the case that overturned Roe was explicit on multiple times to say that the reasoning that they were using to overturn Roe did not appeal, did not apply, excuse me, to other decisions. And they explicitly listed uh, the gay marriage uh, decision, the one legalizing gay marriage, Obergefell, the one overturning the sodomy laws, Lawrence v. Texas. Uh, and I think that it would be very hard to see anything approaching a majority on the court that would overturn uh, those rulings. Um, I also think public opinion is very important here. You know, public opinion on Roe, on, 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 on abortion, um, has really not changed much at all since Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973. And that's one of the reasons why I think the justices felt justified in overturning it, was that they believed that this was um, circumventing a democratic decision that should have been left to the people and their representatives. Um, whereas there is no other issue on which there has been a more dramatic shift in public opinion over the past 50 years than homosexuality and equal rights for gay people. And this is this is according to public opinion pollsters who will tell you, you know, just look at the numbers, the percentage of Americans who believed uh, not only that gay people should not have the right to marry, uh, but who believed that, gay pe that, that homosexuality was a sickness and that gay people shouldn't be allowed to teach in public schools. Uh, the, the percentages who supported those beliefs, who held those beliefs, were extremely high in, in the early 1970s. And they've been completely reversed now over time. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't, I don't foresee um, the Supreme Court um, going after uh, gay marriage or other d decisions protecting gay people just because of this decision involving Roe versus Wade. So the book is Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. It's written by my guest, James Kerchick, and published by Henry Holt. Uh, but for now, Jamie, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.